Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone, to Marine Conversations at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, my name is Adam Hirschfelder. I'm the director of Marin Conversations. We're pleased to have both Justin Smith on the right and Professor Jessica Riskin here on my left. Justin is currently in the United States as a visiting scholar at the New York Public Library. And Dr. Riskin is here from a bit closer, Stanford University, where she is a professor of history. I know that both speakers tonight have books here, including Justin's new book on irrationality, which is the theme for tonight's program, and so incredibly timely on many fronts, <laughs> including Brexit, which becomes official in a couple of days, impeachment, and every day seems to be something new. So tonight, to kick things off, Dr. Riskin, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Adam. Good evening. Welcome, everyone, to tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club at the Outdoor Arts Club in Mill Valley, California. My name is Jessica Riskin, and I teach in the History Department at Stanford. Um, I have a particular interest in the history of science and modern European history. And I'm especially happy to be here tonight with my friend Justin E.H. Smith, who um, is the author of the recent book, Irrationality, The History of the Dark Side of Reason. And as Adam said, if ever there was a timely subject, a timely book, this would be it. Um, So I thought what I would do is to start off by trying to say my understanding of your argument in the book. Um, And we can start from there. Um, So as I read you, you are saying that if we try to establish a, a, a sort of rigorously rational society and culture, and when people have tried to do this in the past, what happens is that the kind of ineradicable, irrational impulses and forces that are in humans will sort of bite back, and there'll be a, a reaction, there'll be a resurgence of irrationality. And so if we want to try and tame those irrational Impulses. the thing to do is to make room for them and find a way to sort of live with them as integral parts of our society and culture. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could now either correct or, or fill in or amplify. Thank that. you. That's a good introduction. That's a good initial introduction to uh, aims of the book. It is the argument, but when you put it like that, and when I hear my own argument stated back to me and distilled down to uh, a single sentence Uh-oh. i find that i find that it's no i find that it's accurate but also i'm a bit embarrassed at how obvious it is right did did a did a whole book need to be written yes uh, it did uh, uh, and we have a whole uh, hour to talk about <laughs> so that I'll, i'm going to interpret it for that reason as a sort of a an invitation to uh, restate the argument, which you've done accurately, but rather to characterize the broader aim, which I distinguish from argument, right? The aim is to survey a wide field of different places in which the idea of irrationality comes up. 
Uh, and it's difficult because the word is used in so many different ways that you can't really define it. You can only give a list of typical occurrences. And these occurrences range over a huge variety of domains of human life, some of which are timely, particularly in uh, global and American politics in the present moment, but some of which have to do with untimely, in Nietzsche's sense, or eternal aspects of human existence, right? Uh, So the narrowest definition of what irrationality is, I take from uh, logic, and I say it's simply a violation of the law of the excluded middle, right? A failure to accept that whatever we're talking about, it either is or is not the case, right? And this is a law of reasoning uh, in the history of Western philosophy that is solidified with Aristotle, even though it goes back even further, So where does that law break down? Where do we start getting loose uh, with our commitment to the idea that for any A, it's either A or not A? Well, when we fall asleep, uh, when we're dreaming, our grandfather morphs into our ex-landlord or whatever and and you know we're perfectly fine with that it doesn't it doesn't seem to bother us so for this reason it's pretty safe to say that when we're in the cognitive mode of that's typical of sleep we're not being as rational as we are in our waking life or at least as we aspire to be in our waking life but there are other moments in our waking life where we start Start also to lose it a bit um, that you know are are enhanced or intensified with uh, drugs or alcohol or uh, mass political rallies or sporting events where we kind of blend in with the, the passions of the crowd. And in all of these cases and all these different domains, you know, it's not just that we lose, we lose sight of the law of the excluded middle, but in general, and if, if you want to get an easy handle on it, one way of thinking about it is that there are a number of different cases, a number of different situations in which human beings find themselves in which commitment to pure uh, rational thinking breaks down. Some of these are perfectly fine. Nobody is going to say you shouldn't sleep uh, for eight hours each night, right? Obviously, this is something that's just a part of human life. So then the question is, how do we modify or modulate this ineliminable quality of human existence uh, without letting it get the better of us at the social and political level? I think that's the way I would characterize the aim of the book. But And again, in order to show this, it has to range over several different examples of the way in which the notion of irrationality is invoked. Yeah, I wondered, I wondered if I could ask you a kind of historical question, if um, you could talk a little bit about um, attempts to do this. I mean, it seems to me, you know, has, has anyone, any society uh, ever actually attempted to establish an absolutely rigorously rationalist 
culture. Um, and the reason I ask, actually, you know, so maybe on the planet Vulcan, <laughs> but but even on the planet Vulcan, um, there's this once every seven years. I don't know if there are any Trekkies out there, but <laughs> there is this once every seven years uh, event um, uh, to let people express their drives. Um, but so, in other words, it seems to me like maybe the stuff of science fiction. And and one reason I ask that is that I think often people characterize the Enlightenment, uh, so this you know big intellectual and cultural movement of the 18th century that culminated at the end of the century in the American and French revolutions. And people often characterize the Enlightenment as the moment when you know, reason was enthroned and, and rationality became uh, sort of supreme. And, and, and they characterized the Enlightenment, uh, Enlightenment writers and thinkers as having been single-mindedly devoted to mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a, a, a caricature in a sense. It's, it, it seems to me to uh, oversimplify the Enlightenment in, in various ways. If you, th- if you think about the major uh, proponents of reason and rationality. So, for example, the German philosopher Kant, Immanuel Kant, you know, he was, he was uh, certainly a believer in the power of reason, but also a critic. He, was of re- he wrote these critiques of reason in which he was very much interested in the limits, the contours and the limits of the power of reason. And he's kind of a leading example, but I think if you took any major Enlightenment figure or any, any of these kind of the great rationalist philosophers, they were almost as interested, it seems to me, in the limits and contours of reason as in the as in the power of reason, and always in relation to other faculties like imagination and mm-hmm. sensation and, 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 and so forth. So, you know, has there been a time when people have tried to do this? Well, you're obviously pointing out a basic historical truth, which is that uh, the more you know about history, the more complicated our schematic narratives of historical movements as broad and as multifaceted as something like the Enlightenment turned out to be, right? Certainly. But at the same time, there's a question why uh, people today find this narrative satisfying, right? Why we have people like Steven Pinker writing Enlightenment Now, about which you wrote a really wonderful review uh, in the LA Review of Books recently. So uh, he might be wrong about the Enlightenment, but he is nonetheless spinning the Enlightenment in a way in which evidently a lot of people are satisfied to hear about. Right, And so even if certainly when we look at the the Enlightenment in a more sort of fine-grained, sensitive way, we see Kant critiquing the limits of reason, we see Hume even more radically, I would say, David Hume, the paradigm figure of the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, saying that reason should be a slave to the passions. So when we see these Enlightenment figures saying such things about the limits of reason, and then we see the way the Enlightenment is being invoked today as if it were simply a cult of reason, we might be surprised, but nonetheless, uh, there is at least a hope or a desire that this is going to be the ultimate payoff of that historical period, right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. Well, maybe actually we can come back mm-hmm. to Steven Pinker in a moment, but it, you just made me think of something um, when you mentioned Hume and the passions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, So I was trying to think of other people who are often pointed to as the most devoted to to the power of reason. And of course, people often think of um, of the French, 17th century French philosopher Descartes. And it's true that he seems to be sort of a true believer in a way that maybe some of his followers in the 18th century had more qualified views mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. But in his, even in his case, it seems to me it's important to ask reason as opposed to what. Mm-hmm. So in your book, you have rationality and irrationality as the kind of pair the, the, of diametrical opposites. Mm-hmm. But in Descartes' case, he was really advocating for a certain kind of mechanistic reasoning. Mm-hmm. His model for this was clockwork. Mm-hmm. So you know, his, his, what he was trying to argue was that people should, if we want to do science and understand the natural world, really the model we should be following is uh, a clockmaker's model. We should be trying to understand the natural world in terms of moving parts in just the way that a clockmaker understands a clock in, in terms of moving parts. So that's a kind of mechanist model of what reason is. Mm-hmm. And he was rejecting, not really irrationality, I wouldn't say, but what he was rejecting was an older kind of Christianized Aristotelian mm-hmm. philosophy that was taught in the middle, medieval universities it was a form of reason that operated in terms of, you know, intrinsic tendencies and ultimate purposes, final purposes, and was a kind of teleological form of reasoning. So, so I guess when you talked about Hume and the passions, it made me think of this. It triggered me to think back to Descartes and these. Mm-hmm. The question I'm asking is reason as opposed to what? So mm-hmm. you could have other forms of reason. You could have the passions. You could have imagination. Mm-hmm. Experience often, I think, in the 17th and 18th centuries, there was a whole struggle among, you know, people interested in the natural sciences, whether your knowledge is properly founded in sensory experience, and you should try to suspend any presuppositions and just infer from sensory experience, or whether, on the contrary, you start with a rational system and then you go look for experiences to support it. So sensory experience is another Right. So reason as opposed to yeah. what, I guess. Is what okay, I yeah. Again, there I just kind of return at the outset to my opening gambit, which is that uh, reason uh, like irrationality or unreason is, as Aristotle would say, said in many ways, right? Which means that it is contrasted with many many different things. Sometimes, indeed, the rational order of nature, as in Descartes, is conceptualized um, as a mechanical system in which every effect is uh, inferable from knowledge of the causes, as, as we have with the gears in a clock which is why that that metaphor is so captivating, and also to invoke the very interesting theme of your book, also on the table in the back. I, I think the restless clock, this is why the life sciences uh, through modern science, early modern science, into such severe crisis, right? Because uh, in order not to be uh, kind of defeated by the unfathomable system that is a living body, early modern thinkers were compelled to imagine the living body as 
a variety of clockwork as a restless clock. But the analogy seems so strained that few people actually believed it, right? And this is why, in a sense, from the 1700s to the late 1900s, biology, what we would come to call biology, always loomed as a threat to rationalism, right? And this, I think, uh, brings us to the question of rationalism with a capital R. Sometimes we talk about uh, Descartes as a member of the school of rationalists with a capital R, other rationalists being Spinoza and the person I spent many years of my scholarly life working on, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. These are the rationalists, and when we speak of rationalism in their rather technical sense, I think what we mean is that basic truths can be grasped simply by reflecting on them, right, rather than checking them out in the world. There are basic, not just logical truths, but also metaphysical truths, like, for existence, uh, like, like for example, uh, for Leibniz, the existence of God, the immortality of the soul, things like this, the capacity of human reason to grasp these truths, right? And these, then, are the starting point for every other thing we might want to know about the world, right? So that's what rationalism is in a strict sense, as as a proper noun, right? In a strict historical sense, that's what we mean when we talk about rationalism, a commitment to, to human reason as a starting point for knowing the world, right? And Leibniz, I think, is the most extreme. He's the most radical of the rationalists in, the, in that he believes that in the end you can, you can also infer from your own uh, self-reflection empirical truths about the way the world is. Like, for example, that we're all sitting here tonight. Uh, that's not an empirical truth for Leibniz. That's something that you can know prior to experience. So it's a, it's a wildly uh, extreme commitment to the capacity of human reason that, in, in a sense, one could not go farther than that, right? And in a sense, I take these later thinkers of the 18th century of the, of the kind of high enlightenment as coming down a slope after Leibniz, who died in 1716, had ascended to its very summit, right? The summit of rationalism. Now, I don't mean to lay on the details of the history of philosophy too heavily, but what I wanted to emphasize was that all of these rationalists, um, again with a capital R, were extremely wary of imagination, which is something you invoked. Um, And we don't often think about this today, but what is imagination literally? It's the rendering of images. It's the, the, it's the, the activity of imaginating, right? Where do these images form? Well, in the intellect. 
where do they come from? They come from the bodily senses, right? They come from, like, if you close your eyes and you rub them, you'll see splotches. You might see cartoon figures or chimeras of various sorts. You should be very wary of those things because they're coming from bodily impressions, like all imagination, right? And uh, when we're asleep, again, to to return to dreams, we've got nothing but that. When we wake up, we can remind ourselves that, that because we're bodily beings, because we have sense organs, because we see, we're going to be bombarded with imaginatings of that sort. But what our real faculty of reason is, is basically geometry, right? Uh, geometry, logic, and, well, this gets complicated, but theology as well, right? Yes, that's actually, that's a perfect segue uh, to what I wanted to ask you. It suddenly occurred to me when you mentioned Leibniz's belief, the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. It occurred to me, actually, that we should probably emphasize, I mean, and I don't know where you want to take this historical conjunction, but it might sound strange to a 21st century audience mm-hmm. that um, the rash, these rationalists that we're talking about, 17th and 18th century rationalists, the guarantee of the power of reason was theological. Mm-hmm. It was theological. It was that, you know, there's a rational designer of the world, a rational designer God. And so, for example, Isaac Newton, you know, assumed that when he was working out uh, his physics in, in, the, in the language of mathematics, uh, that there was a guarantee that that rational language suited this world because the world was designed by a rational God. And I think, you know, that assumption that you were talking about, the kind of conviction that these rationalists, Leibniz and others had, Descartes, that their power of reason would unlock the secrets. There would be a correspondence between our power of reason and the secrets of the world, of the universe. The guarantee of that is the rational designer God. Um, And I think that that actually is interesting, that that is built into the deep structure of modern science in a way that carries on uh, through the 19th and 20th centuries and even maybe to the present, Mm -hmm. that that although scientists no longer invoke theological bases, Mm -hmm. some of those convictions remain, you know, the idea that um, that nature can be described in kind of simple, beautiful mathematical terms mm-hmm. and, you know, principles of economy, those sorts of things that we should use fewer principles rather than more principles when we can are, are, are remainders, I think, of that. That's so interesting. Uh, and I'm not sure I agree uh, uh, because, uh, and this is something that I, I deal with in the chapter on pseudoscience in, in Irrationality, Certainly, God for 17th century rationalists was the guarantor of our knowledge of certain basic truths about the world. You also, though, find deep commitment to a kind of mind-world match in, say, Aristotle, even though Aristotle didn't believe that God is making any particular efforts on our part, right? Uh, Now, bring this up to the 21st century, and my example might lose you for a second, but I promise I'll bring it back to Aristotle and the rationalists. There's a wonderful non-academic writer who wrote a wonderful book. She's Australian. I'm blanking on her name. It's in the book. Maybe someone here will know. The book is called Outsider Physics, 
and it's about a group that regularly meets, I think once a year, of people who don't hold academic credentials but who have theories of the basic functioning of physical reality, alternatives to Newton and Einstein and quantum mechanics. One of the most prominent among them is a guy who lives in a mobile home somewhere in Humboldt County, I think, and who has observed enough smoke rings to come to the conclusion that the basic elements of physical reality have the form of smoke rings, right? And one of the things, that this one... I, doubt, I, I imagine he's producing those smoke rings. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so one of the really interesting observations that the author of Outsider Physics makes um, as a kind of, you know, the sociology of outsider science is that these people are fed up with being told that there's a kind of expert knowledge about what the reality of the universe is to which you do not have access, right? Because you didn't get certified by the right institutions and get all, sor all sorts of technical training, when in fact that technical training is really just getting you further and further from reality when string theory tells you there are 11 dimensions because it's required mathematically, even though no one has any idea what an 11-dimension reality would be like, right? So they're bringing it back to the basics, right? Smoke rings, for example. There are other examples that are equally delightful in this book. But they're bringing it back also to Aristotle in the sense that there's a basic rational commitment, a rationalist commitment to the idea that our minds, our intellects, are equipped to grasp the nature of reality, right? Why wouldn't they be? Why would there be a gap between the way reality is and the way it presents itself to us, right? And so for this reason, I, I see, I read modern philosophy as the generation of a gap where other tendencies in the history of thinking about the relationship between, between ourselves and the world have been to suppose that there is no gap, that we, that we are kind of capable of apprehending the world as it is. So why does modern science generate that gap, I think, is a very interesting question, and it's a question that's very relevant to our understanding of various skeptical tendencies today not just outsider physics, but also creationism, climate change denialism, etc., etc., right? These can all, in their own way, I think, be seen as reactions to the authority of people who have this technical training, and this technical training, in turn, is based on the presumption that you need a lot of technique in order to again, bridge the gap between mind and world. I see. So you're saying that the sort of modern assumption that the people who really understand how the world works do so because of lots and lots of training, that's the, the gap that you're... That's interesting. I mean, I had been going... So picking up on what you said about Aristotle, 
I'm currently teaching at Stanford a course on the on the so-called scientific revolution, the sort of early modern sciences of the 16th and 17th centuries, which are in many areas kind of the founding moments of modern scientific disciplines. So this is the period of, you know, Galileo and Newton and um, William Harvey and, and people like that. And um, and I've been suggesting to the students that, in fact, uh, we, we start the course with Aristotle, and it seems to me that so there's this ancient idea that everything in nature has a purpose, an a- ancient Aristotelian idea that everything in nature has a purpose, and our job in philosophy is to go and understand that sort of web of purposes. That gets translated, it seems to me, in the early modern period into a kind of more engineering model. So mm-hmm. everything has a purpose, but the purposes now are like the purpose of a gear and a clock. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so we're trying to understand the rational design of nature, but in these kind of material, uh, in terms of material moving parts mm-hmm. in this kind of clock-making engineering way. Mm-hmm. And I think that carries, you know, carries through the early modern period. And, and uh, for example, in the life sciences... With with Darwin and the theory of evolution, mm. Darwin sort of famously was trying to understand living organisms as designed, as, as sort of fitted and adapted to their circumstances mm-hmm. in a design-like way, but without a designer. Right. And he arrived at natural selection. But still, it's a question of understanding the purposes. Right. Evolution by natural uh, natural selection is, uh, at least in large part, about understanding the purposes that that different structures serve. And so through the history of science, uh, for all of that period of time, you see a kind of continual retranslation of the, uh, of, of this basic idea that there, that there are rational purposes or rationally graspable or philosophically graspable purposes. And the job of philosophy or then later science, natural philosophy and science is to get at those purposes. And now, so there's a moment of professionalization that you're describing Mm. where suddenly in order to do that, you need lots of specialized training, or mm-hmm. such, that's the claim. Mm-hmm. And skeptics are people who react against that and say, mm-hmm. no, we can, yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. And yeah, and it's, it's a, I mean, it's a healthy reaction, too. And this is, I think, this is why I, my own convictions and my own sense of my political orientation and, and who I uh, align with were thrown into a sort of crisis in working on this book, right? Because I did find myself sympathizing in surprising ways with people who believe what I take to be really screwball things, right? Um, but I, when I say really screwball, I, the, the crisis was triggered by the fact that I find that I have a lot of difficulty fleshing out what I mean by screwball, right? And I think, you know, it's very significant that uh, that in uh, the past few years, uh, creation science seems rather tame, and it's been kind of outflanked by something that at least circa 2015, 2016, when I was observing these phenomena most, it's been outflanked by something much more radical, which is flat earth theory, right? And of course, flat Flat earthers have always been around. Uh, I, my, my father ordered a flat Earth Society card as a joke in, in the in the early 1980s. I remember this very well. Interest spiked 
circa late 2015-2016. Hits on YouTube for flat earth flat earther videos were spiking, right? We've got the numbers on this, right? And so this is obviously a, you know, something to think about in relation to political events of the same historical moment. Why is it that people felt they had to up the ante with their skepticism, right? Because flat eartherism denies, I mean, well, if you think about it, creationism mobilizes a skepticism about accounts that are handed down by authorities of a non-observable past, right? And there are plenty of perfectly respectable philosophers of science, Karl Popper, to name one of them, who said outright that Darwinism is uh, pure metaphysics, right? It's not science, it's metaphysics. Why? Well, because you can't, you can't observe the past, therefore claims about the distant past are unfalsifiable, etc. So uh, this was fuel for the creationist's fire. Flat earthers do something much more radical. They claim that you can't trust basic elements of interpretation of the world around us here and now, right? So it's much more radical, but also, you know, I mean, again, this is just me trying to be charitable and, and trying to, trying to question my own knee-jerk judgment of screwballism. Um, it's also true that ancient Chinese navigation worked just fine based on a flat earth cosmology and so on and so on. The, the way the world appears to us is in many important respects, as flat, right? But what all of these have in common, I think, is um, rejection of the what is seen as a kind of priestly class of experts who uh, I think this this figure, the figure of the scientist who's going to tell us what the world is really like, and in some respects, like in the case of environmental science and, 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 and climate change, is not only going to tell us what the world is like, but also to tell us how we must behave. The figure of the scientist in that manifestation, I think, is more a product of the 19th century than of the 17th century. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So, uh, you know, this is really interesting. I um, certainly a kind of populist rejection of expertise. We have seen that you know, in history that has happened recurrently, and you know, in the French Revolution, and and we're seeing that now for sure. I wonder. I had a kind of. Um, idea about what's going on with flat earthers in 2015, mm-hmm. which is, I think, not so much an alternative idea, I, because I think it, it can go alongside with what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather than being a resurgence of irrationality in the face of kind of over-assertion of rationality uh, and, and kind of um, expert-only right 
to rationality. Um, I think there's another thing going on, um, perhaps, which is that there's a kind of degeneration in our understanding of reason and rationalism and science um, as a result of the fa- of a change that's taken place, you know, over the last century and a half or something like that. If you think back to the 18th century, um, people who studied reason and its applications, you know, they were, they were, they did so in a way that combined humanistic and literary and philosophical and artistic and all these different kind of areas of endeavor were all mixed up together. So if you think about the major figures of the 18th century, so let's take somebody like Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. You know, he was involved in, he was a, in more, he was a moralist, he was a writer and a printer, he was involved, obviously, he wrote about political economy mm-hmm. and obviously political philosophy, he did physics, electrical mm-hmm. physics, and he's just typical of, you know, any, any major figure, Voltaire, Adam Smith, David Hume, people were using reason, you know, and and studying reason and its applications in a kind of whole integral um, Mm -hmm. way, you know, attempt to understand the world. Mm -hmm. And then at the turn, so this connects up with what you're saying about professionalization. At the turn, around the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries, there begins to be this kind of fragmentation of different fields of inquiry. and, and increasingly, I think, over the course of the 20th century, but it's recent. I think it really mm-hmm. is around the turn of the 19th to the 20th yeah. centuries because, yeah. you know, for example, Charles Darwin hadn't gone to that side of the transformation. You know, he mm-hmm. was very involved in literature. and in, So, okay, mm-hmm. over the course of the 20th century, there's this kind of increasing fragmentation and parceling out of different mm-hmm. fields mm-hmm. of inquiry. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think about this at Stanford because at Stanford we have this traditional division of the world into the techies and the fuzzies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my students are kind of a mix of techies and fuzzies. Um, and Stanford was founded just around the time that this division, yeah. this great divorce was taking place. Yeah. I think really to the impoverishment yeah. of both the sciences and the humanities. And this fragmentation and, and kind of um, narrowing of everybody's intellectual enterprise has carried on in such a way that in the early 21st century, it seems like the kind of reigning model of science often is is innovation. That is, you know, very narrow applications of science to commercially lucrative technology app, apps, basically. And so there's been a kind of impoverishment of our understanding of the uses of scientific rationality. Sure. And, um, and, I, and I'll come back to, you know, so on the one hand, you have flat earthers mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, you know, seem to me to be connected with that impoverishment. But also, then I'll bring Steven Pinker back in, you know, so because he and uh, his kind of fellow travelers, I think, shout reason and science at people as a kind of like they use it like a cudgel Mm -hmm. Um, and and say things like you know here's the data you can't argue with the data or you're irrational you know which is nonsense of course data people argue with data all the time without being irrational so i think in a sense the advocates of rationality today are capitalizing on this reduced degenerated understanding of what scientific reason is in the same way that the flat earthers, you know, they're kind of common. Yeah. They're, they're both resulting from the same 
development. Yeah, yeah both uh, seem to have degenerated into mere caricatures. Yeah. Um, uh, but in a, uh, what what I find astounding, and again, I didn't expect myself to come to this conviction, is that if you take, say, the disciples of Pinker versus your typical flat earther, there seems to be a kind of earnest longing for wholeness of of the knowledge project in the flat earther that's missing in the heavy-handed uh, assertion of rationality by the enlightenment now crowd and for that reason i come out hesitantly like extremely hesitantly more sympathetic to the flat earthers right um and i and again i i didn't expect this um but certainly i i mean you know the 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 problem of the of the two cultures to invoke the cp snow essay from the i think the early 1950s is only deepened by early 21st century neoliberal kind of pushing of what we're now referring to as STEM. And STEM is a particularly impoverished notion of what science is um, and, uh, and misses so much of what science historically has been as recently as the 20th century, right? Um, it precisely became because, as you say, STEM is a, a, a notion, uh, I think an ideological tool uh, being uh, used for the transma- transformation of higher education into, or of universities into, let's say, uh, patent factories and uh, engines of innovation where one no longer has any really sophisticated philosophical understanding of what uh, progress is and sees it only uh, in terms of that one domain of human life where progress is actually easy to measure, which is technology, right? Why is it easy to measure? Well, you make your microchip smaller, uh, you make your, uh, your rocket faster or whatever else. That's progress, right? That's measurable progress. But obviously, that, that's only kind of a very small subdomain of what the scientific endeavor has been, again, I think as recently as uh, the mid-20th century. Yeah, I think uh, it, um, I'm trying to think of examples, the most recent examples I can come up with. So, for example, I don't know if anybody has seen uh, Michael Frayn's very beautiful play, Copenhagen, oh, yeah. which is about the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics that um, uh, Heisenberg and Bohr, two of the physicists who developed the theory of quantum mechanics, uh, came up with a particular interpretation of it. And it seems to me the Copenhagen interpretation is precisely an attempt to attach a kind of larger philosophical and conceptual meaning to this physical theory. And so, and when is that? That's the 1920s, 30s, right? Um, I had mentioned Darwin. So in other words, this, uh, this kind of divergence or this divorce, I don't know exactly what to call it, mm-hmm. um, and fragmentation of knowledge is really recent. Yeah. Um, and, and I've been trying to think of remedies. In fact, I've been sort of preoccupied by this recently. I was reading C.P. Snow's, mm-hmm. uh, rereading his essay on the two cultures. Um, he, I think it's something like 1957. Mm-hmm. And at that point, in fact, rereading it, what I realized was that he was actually trying to defend 
engineers. He was writing, you know, I think at Cambridge University in a world where um, the the literary scholars still had the cultural, you know, all the prestige. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, you all look down your noses at the engineers because they've never read Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But you can't, you know, if I ask you in a cocktail party, what's the second law of thermodynamics, Mm -hmm. you're not going to know. So that's just as bad, you know. So he was trying to defend the engineers. I don't think he, I don't think he foresaw how far to the other two. He didn't foresee. Right. Um, Anyway, I've been trying to think of remedies for this. Uh, I actually, I direct a center at Stanford where we fund little research, we fund research projects, and we've just launched an appeal for projects that will be not only interdisciplinary, but inter two cultures that will Mm -hmm. put together humanists and scientists. Mm -hmm. But I I wonder, you know, do you, I mean, what remedies might there be? If flat earthers are our best hope, that's a (laughs) Um, (laughs) a concern. Well, I mean, that's in part, I think, uh, whatever the remedy is going to be, whatever, however these tendencies evolve um, is likely to be something beyond the power of institutions, even powerful institutions like Stanford or even very powerful institutions like Google uh, uh, or Apple uh, could could control, right? Because it's going to be, um, you know, uh, teenage YouTubers saying what's on their mind that actually changes these things. And if it's what, if, if flat earth theory is what's on their mind, then, you know, that's, that's the direction the culture is headed. Um, that said, I mean, obviously I think both of us, um, working as we do in, um, uh, the history of science uh, are committed to the idea that by uh, uh, excavating this history, we can uh, rediscover old models of what of what the relationship between humanistic learning and uh, empirical uh, knowledge of the natural world. Uh, uh, is and in that way we can we can bring these historical lessons um, to you know the dean at Stanford or <laughs> or, or the, the 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 heads of Google and say there are other ways to do this right um, but uh, I'm skeptical I'm increasingly skeptical of of the power of of, of our of our scholarly research to to change the direction of of the culture. So I, I have an idea actually. I was thinking about. Um, Adam Smith, mm-hmm. the Scottish Enlightenment um, philosopher, who many many people identify as, you know, most people identify as kind of the author of classical liberal economic mm-hmm. theory. He was much less sanguine, actually, about commercial society than his followers <laughs> have often been. Mm-hmm. And he warned about this. You know, he said the danger of commercial society is that. Um, it's very stultifying, very narrowing, very, it'll fragment people into, you know, these kind of very narrow ways of life and, and people will become very stupid and incapable of engaging in civic life. And he had a remedy, um, in mind, various remedies, but they by and large took the form of public institutions. So he said, what you need is very, very, um, well-established, uh, public schools, education, um, and public support for, you know, sort of culture and, and, and education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, maybe, I mean. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we had for a good long time, yeah. right? But we seem to be at the end of the historical period of the institutions that 
high enlightenment figures like Smith were envisioning, right? And at the beginning of a historical period of new institutions that, uh, that are still taking shape and we don't exactly know what is going to come of these and whether they become new catalysts for a kind of healthy balance between reason and, um, and its darker side, as we put it in the book, is, I think remains to be seen. For the moment, I think the internet, particularly as its uh, kind of social media wing, which is a big part of the public access to the internet, is mostly the darker side, right? Um, and this is, the, I think, the predominant institution of the current moment. Yeah. So, so I mean, on the one hand, well, it's interesting. So are, are flat earthers a product of a kind of populist um, reaction against the cloistering of authority within kind of these these bastions of science. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That 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 seems like a more sympathetic uh, version of what they are, or are they um, kind of just an expression of the of the craziness of the internet? Because I, I imagine 2015, much of this is happening on on you know social media and in a kind of chaotic. Mm-hmm. way um, on the internet or I mean I've, I don't know why I put it as an either or it can easily be both mm-hmm. but um, yeah one description it's interesting because one description makes it seem like a sort of sympathetic somewhat sympathetic development or one with which one could be somewhat sympathetic whereas the other ones makes it seem just frightening and, mm-hmm. and <laughs> yeah yeah the, sure the dark, the dark side well certainly I mean uh, uh, yeah we isolate I, for me 2015 is a is a key year right it's the year kind of I uh, first noticed a lot of tendencies in the world around us that had previously escaped me. Um, and it's, uh, you know, when I first started uh, kind of uh, probing into the depths of, um, or let's say the darker corners of the internet um, and discovering this kind of effervescence of irrationality that, um, that, that, that I only faintly detected before. And it was this effervescence, I think, that managed to propel essentially an internet troll into the highest office of the most powerful country in the world. Um, and that, um, you know, that showed, I think, I mean, if that doesn't prove the power of trolling, um, um, then I don't, I don't know what would. So it was around 2015 that I started noticing, um, that, uh, that this is where, uh, things are happening, right? And what was happening was, I, t- I, I think, a kind of celebration and uh, effervescence in the, I'm thinking of this wonderful anthropologist, Mary Douglas, um, who talks about, you know, the effervescent moment in the establishment of new religions. Um, this was an effervescent moment in the history of the culture and of political culture um, that caught a lot of us off guard, including myself, um, and that also, I think, brought a lot of what would previously have been extremist positions um, into, as people say on the internet, the discourse, right? Um, and again, that's that's why that's why we're focusing on 2015. Yeah, it's interesting to me because that moment that you're describing. Um, coincides so this is a moment when you know 
um, there seems to be a kind of unleashing of this crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And people like you and me start saying, what's happening to the world? What's going on? You know, um, how has this happened? And it also coincides with the moment when these uh, people I was mentioning uh, a little while ago, the new optimists, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of movement to say, well, actually, everybody's been saying that the world is, you know, going crazy and things are terrible. But actually, if you look at the data, actually, things are getting better and better. And, you know, uh, so people like Steven Pinker, Bill Gates, this is Bill Gates's Mm -hmm. favorite, um, you know, kind of school of history. Um, uh, So, you know, there are kind of powerful forces (laughs) insisting that actually things are getting much better. And if you just look at the data, uh, you can see that. And all of these things seem to me to be related, right? I mean, the, the, the craziness, the shock of certain people uh, like ourselves at this craziness and the insistence of other people that actually it's all good. It's all good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I suppose the, I like this term, the new optimists. And I suppose that they can just screen out the, the flat earthers as irrelevant noise that accompanies uh, this tendency, this overall tendency to the, the improvement of our human plight. But I think it's an, a very interesting, obviously you're absolutely right in what you say and in what this take on the Enlightenment in, in your review of Pinker, you're absolutely right that it's a really, really impoverished understanding of what, uh, of what scientific rationality is to suppose that the data speak for themselves, right? And in part, this is one of the great tragedies of the rift between the two cultures, right? That the, the hermeneutical work, right? The work of interpretation, which is something that people who read classical literature, who interpret the Bible uh, or Shakespeare are very good at doing, uh, the work of the interpretation, uh, the work of the interpreter is something that, you know, is also required for anyone who works with data of any sort, right? And this is, this is the basic failure to grasp this is a singular skill that unites the humanities and the natural sciences. Um, and I, I agree with you that that's absolutely, uh, tragic. Um, now, uh, 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 the, what I find, and I think we have to finish up pretty soon, yeah, so I, I'll just, just say I, I wanted to um, say one thing that I find particularly perplexing about this new optimism is that it is, in this particular cultural moment, marked as... Uh, Something vaguely right wing ish, right? Not extreme right, but, you know, center right ish. And if you try to place this in the history of conservatism, if you think about, say, Burkean conservatism, um, it was always looking back to something that was that was there in the good old days that we've lost in this uh, in this degenerate decadent age, right? And so what is it exactly about this cultural moment that's brought it about that it's the conservatives who are saying things are getting better and better and the future is looking bright and it's the at least nominal left that's saying um, uh, uh, we're screwed. Uh, the world's about to end. Things used to be better in the old days. I find I find that particular feature of the of the current uh, situation 
hard to hard to to to, to untangle hard it to is. understand it is a reversal i mean but it, i think you know on some level maybe it's not so mysterious the story of the new optimists is that you know tech uh, and sort of combined forces of tech and capitalism are saving the world. And mm-hmm. so the people who are committed to making that argument are the people who are served by that. You know. right. um, but, and that's uh, an elite uh, uh, optimism. Yeah. 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 And, and I, uh, I wholeheartedly agree that maybe one way to knit the sciences and humanities back together again is to, uh, to really emphasize um, that all forms of knowledge are interpretive. Scientific knowledge, as much as humanistic um, uh, historical knowledge, interpretation is can't be eliminated. You know, all human endeavors to understand the world are going to be interpretive. But I have now uh, received the signal that this is the point where there's time for one last question that I can ask Justin. Mm. No, then then you all get to ask lots of questions, but I'm going to ask one last question. And I guess what I want to ask you is where uh, so where do you go from irrationality? Mm. What thread are you taking out of this book to follow into your next? area of um, research next, next subject well I, I i'm i'm interested i'm particularly interested right now in um the um uh question of uh the deformation the perversion of human social life by uh algorithms um and by the ubiquity of algorithmic forces but also being a a, a a scholar of the history and philosophy of science i'm interested in the history of algorithms um and the way i see our current crisis um where our political convictions are shaped by algorithmic tools over which we have no control um this is the end of a long historical arc that begins, uh, like many things in the modern world, with Leibniz, uh, uh, who around 1672 uh, proposed that we invent machines to which we might outsource a number of the more drudging uh, activities of our reasoning. He even said that someday we will be able to say, let us compute, and we'll just enter our thoughts into reckoning engines that will then tell us what follows from our thoughts. um, and that will make our thinking easier. So I think the optimism about what outsourcing our reasoning um, would really bring about socially and politically extends from about 1672 to about 2015, right? Where we finally see that outsourcing our thinking to machines was a really bad idea. Um, and... Um, and it's too late now, obviously, to um, to take our thinking back from the machines. Um, but how we might understand what this transfer has done to our humanity is a very important question. And so I hope to be writing about that in the coming years. <laughs> Now it's your turn. Uh, thank you. Yes, I have a question. It's ex- immediately following on what you just said, mm. Professor. Um, with, with the increase of artificial intelligence uh, and what l- seems to be in the next 20, 30 years, the, po- the potential for machines to be able to be creative, potentially, mm-hmm. uh, to think independently in some fashion, and I don't know what that really means, to be blunt, 
But I'm curious, what is your thinking about how how, how do we deal with ethical ethical decision making mm. with it, with artificial intelligence, and what, where do you see things going from here? I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I don't have any good pre- predictions. What I have is, I think, some pretty well established philosophical commitments of what the present situation is. As for machines getting creative, now this sounds like an aside, but I think it's really interesting. I was reading recently, I don't know if this is true, but very young people, like the younger than the millennials, I forget what they're called, um, Gen Z, um, are learning to manage their personal brands on social media by automation. That is to say, you... Um, you post enough on social media that you can get a bot to figure out um, what uh, kinds of things you say. And one might anticipate that a decade or two from now, um, the way you uh, uh, manicure uh, your uh, public image uh, is by getting the best bot to um, to talk for you, right? I don't think that is, I think there's always, like, however far we go down that path, I think there's always going to be a basically human interest behind it, which is, I want to look good, right? And, um, and, and every, every creative activity we, um, we transfer to machines is going to open up space for new ways of being creative in the way we decide what to transfer. Um, I hope. Um, but that said, I mean, my, my basic fear, and we can't get into kind of the philosophy of artificial intelligence, but my basic fear is one that is, I think, very far from uh, uh, someone like Ray Kurzweil and the, the, also people like Nick Bostrom who are influencing people like Elon Musk, you might know about this, convincing them that the world is a video game simulation, um, and that we're video game avatars that became conscious of ourselves. I think that's just nonsense. The basic worry about outsourcing is not that the machines are going to start to think and do the things that we do qua thinking beings. Um, The fear is, the danger is rather exactly the same danger as when the the subway turnstile doesn't doesn't uh, acknowledge doesn't register your metro card swipe uh, and blocks you the turnstile is stupid it doesn't know it's blocking you and i take it that for basic deep philosophical reasons that is always going to be the case about machines and the and the way the way they're, they're constructed. They aren't going to know that they're making our lives worse, and, and they're not going to be, in a strict sense, creative, um, but the problem, nonetheless, of how they block our human thriving or our getting where we want to go is a real problem. I, can I just add a little yeah. footnote? Um, it's interesting, historically, if you look at that question, it seems yeah. to me people have been making these predictions about any time now, you know, there are going to be mm. machines with a human-like intelligence. But 
it keeps not happening. So first it was going to be yeah. when machines can play chess, but then there are machines that can't play chess, but it didn't seem to really do that. Uh, so then it was when there are machines that can play Go, and now there are machines that can play Go. Yeah, yeah. And and I, so I think, you know, Alan Turing, when was it, 1950, around yeah, 1950, yeah. predicted that within, you know, a very short time, there would be machines that could carry on conversations in such a way that you couldn't distinguish between a human interlocutor and the machine. And we're, I think we're nowhere near that Um you know, so uh, yeah, there's yeah, a historical yeah. support for the claim yeah. you're making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there. Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, I, I'm particularly interested right now in a 13th century example, Roger Bacon's brazen head, right, <laughs> which was effectively a kind of alchemical theory, right, uh, that you know he had <laughs> he had put together using uh, using medieval uh, technology that you could ask any question of and it would answer, and clearly. He didn't actually do this, but the townsfolk thought he did and thought he was a warlock because of it, thought that he had, you know, brought true artificial intelligence into existence. It's a, it's a paradigm, um, uh, you know, it's some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, it's a touchstone of our culture that this thing is about to be made. Um, but the real problem of technology is, I think, something very different. So I, I have a question <clears throat> that relates to why, um, why people, coming back to irrationality, why people can have a, uh, a large set of facts in front of them, mm. which they absolutely deny. Now, the one exa- one uh, explanation that you provided uh, was that people are uh, resisting uh, mm. uh, authority. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's one. But I think that's a, a piece, but I'm not even sure it's the major piece. Mm-hmm. And so are people who are dead set at denying climate change or... I'll say politically, some of the actions that are going on in the White House and so forth, they're denying the problem there, must be operating with a different set of information or perceptions that keep them from accepting what others find very compelling factual information. And this could be social, this could be family, this could be religious, you folks didn't get into that, and mm. I find that mm. – I, I think that's um, – I'd like to hear more about it. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a basic economic model of rationality, which is that it's whatever maximizes your individual profit, right? And there are kind of um, rational choice theory uh, experiments that are set up so as to take for granted um, that people want to maximize their profit, right? And, you know, this is something I touch on briefly in the book. Like, let's say you're um, uh, a Franciscan monk and you have sworn to uh, not acquire more wealth than you can spend in a day um, and some rational choice theorist comes and tries to coerce you into, into doing one of their experiments and says that, you know, if you win this, you'll get $100 or something like that. The Franciscan monk is going to say, I don't want $100. Don't, I mean, get your money away from me. Um, and so this is a case where obviously you don't have the right kind of test subject. Um, and to some extent, I think, you know, we're all like that Franciscan monk in that we're deeply committed to a number of things that are not in our own self-interest, right? Uh, in the 
in the strict economical sense that rational choice theory uh, uh, accept, alone accepts. Um, and we're deeply committed to these things because of peculiarities of our upbringing, our family relationships, our love commitments, um, our basic irrationality, right? I mean, irrationality in the good sense, right? Sometimes that irrationality in the good sense gets transferred to politics, gets transferred to unusual kind of uh, social situations where in order to express your commitment to a certain community, you have to display uh, a rejection of something that on economic or rational choice theory grounds would make a lot of sense. And you have to display it boldly, right? So these things happen, right? And arguably, they're happening a lot today because of the breakdown of, of old institutions that, that kind of kept these, um, these bold expressions in check. That's, that would be my take. I'm just wondering if we got... Uh, can I make a query about your terminology? You use irrationality as the dark side of reason. Maybe we're really better using the word emotions, mm. David Hume's concept of passions, as a more important driver of human decisions. Mm. Um, if we get stuck in these opposing concepts of reason and unreason, we're playing into the role of the elites versus the others. Mm. And maybe part of our problem in the modern world is we disregard the emotions of the others who are concerned about customs, traditions, mm. the way of life they've always known, and see that under attack everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. And this is, we're not really addressing this issue. Mm. And maybe we should have had a radical enlightenment in the 18th century as Spinoza uh, was hoping for, and your friend Diderot, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, that never happened, and we were still in the world of miracles and religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, the miracles and the irrational are still with us. Mm-hmm. People think very much there might be a miraculous uh, solution to our present problems. Mm. Yeah. You brought up something in our exchanges before uh, we came this evening uh, about dialectical thinking, right? That you know, at the very beginning, I said, I said, when you state the argument, it sounds kind of, um, kind of just too obvious to write a book about. And I think that's we, we kind of agreed in advance that this is because we're both essentially inclined towards dialectical thinking, right? And what is dialectical thinking? It's where um, any claim entails its opposite uh, uh, as part of a part of a dynamic system, right? And that is all that was meant by the claim that irrationality is the dark side of reason, sort of like if you're thinking about the moon orbiting uh, on its axis, there's a side of it that's always dark, and yet it's also always turning, and you know it, it gets it gets all the way around, right? And so, so the idea is not that there's something dark and bad and that needs to be eliminated, but just that if something's if something's going around in an orbit, it's going to it's going to hit both sides, right? So emotion is indeed one of the terms that it makes sense to invoke as an opposite of reason in some contexts, but not only, right? And that's, again, the sense in which rationality is said in many ways. Okay. Um, When you mentioned the separation of the humanists from the empiricists Mm. in the 19th and 20th century and that fragmentation, and how Stanford now and your project 
is trying to bring the techies and the fuzzies together. Uh, can you talk a little more about that and what your objective is and how you hope to achieve it? You know, I'm just, thank you for asking that. I'm just beginning to think my way into this. Um, as a historian of science, um, I am sort of in the, mi- in, you know, in the middle, <laughs> bridging the sciences and the humanities. And, um, and I've just increasingly noticed, it seems to me, how impoverishing it is for both sides to be so separate from one another. And so I've been trying to think of ways that I can... Um, you know, what, what would the remedies be? So, you know, this is just one very small thing, the idea of trying to fund projects that bridge those. But, you know, in my, in my research I've gotten, uh, lately I've been sort of working with colleagues in biology because I'm interested in the history of evolutionary theory. And, um, and there are, you know, it, there's a kind of interesting movement in biology to kind of open, um, reopen the field of what people consider in, in talking about evolution. Um, and, and, Indeed, you know, to, to consider culture, animal cultures. Um, and so I have colleagues, uh, you know, on campus who are interested in incorporating ideas about culture into their science. And so they thought, well, who should we talk to about culture? Well, historians know stuff about culture. So I've been, you know, involved in kind of collaborative work with um, evolutionary biologists. And it seems to me like there must be plenty of opportunities to try and think in a more integral, whole way um, and 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 it begins with recognizing the importance of interpretation in any area, um, the importance of sort of confronting the world with conceptually and interpretively, and arriving at the best understanding that you can, whether you're doing that in, in historical scholarship or in evolutionary biology or in physics or any other field. I'm going to have this be our uh, last question with this woman over here. With that, I'm just going to say thank you. Then I'll give her the last question and a reminder that we have books from both of our speakers tonight uh, in the back of the room. So with that, I'm going to give this the last question. Thank you. I don't know how much of a question this is, but I just wanted to comment that it um, seems like the universities are are kind of lagging in um, trying to meld um, the humanities with um, science because it's happening really in elementary schools mm-hmm. right here in California, and um, and I think that that's really very positive. And I think that the basis of that is to improve observation skills, which should be fundamental to both qualitative look as well as quantitative research. And in, in my own field, in life sciences, health sciences, there is a swell towards more qualitative research, which is more dependent on. Um, our sensory observations informing, you know, the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I'm feeling more optimistic about the melding of that than I have ever. Um, you know, I'm kind of in my 60s, so I've seen it the other way when it was really, you know, qualitative research and humanities was really inferior to science. And I'm seeing it's it's moving the other direction and seeing it in um, early childhood education is, uh, I think, a real marker for where it's going. I'm feeling positive. Well, there are, I mean, it's nice to end on an optimistic note. Uh, um, <laughs> but I mean, there are many respects, I think, in which, in which things that we get right for six-year-olds, uh, we uh, unnecessarily separate, and we get them wrong for 20-year-olds. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, so thanks. Thank you.